Good morning. Why don't you come on in? We got to have a great conversation here. Um, we've been looking over the data and I've got some very smart people who are going to break it down for us. So come on in. We'll get started in, the, in a minute. Okay, let's get started. Very excited to uh, be with you this morning, uh, talk about last night and the coming days and maybe weeks. Uh, I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Uh, this is part of an ongoing series of conversations that we've been having about the election all year long. Uh, they've covered a whole range of topics. Um, from Black Lives Matter and the Latino and, and woman vote to uh, looking at um, uh, kind of uh, working class votes. Um, we've looked at campaign strategy, looked at policy issues. So this feels like a kind of a culmination, what happened and why. Um, and I wanna let you know that we are eager for you to join us. Uh, it's part of our tradition that we look for questions that are challenging, uh, you may disagree, you may want other topics, please help us get to that. Uh, at the bottom of the screen, you'll see there's a Q&A button and uh, just click in there and give us the questions and we're gonna get to as many as possible. Um, so I wanna thank our, our guests this morning, um, uh, Justin Bowen, who's a democratic strategist and Vin Weber, uh, who's been associated with the Humphrey School for more than two decades, um, a former member of Congress um, in the Republican Party uh, in the Southwest corner. Um, and he is now at the Mercury firm in Washington, DC. Both Justin and, um, and Vin provide an extraordinary access to both the national and, the, and Minnesota um, thinking within the Democratic and Republican parties and they have access to data that we don't. Um, so it's great to have them here. Thank you very much, Justin and Vin. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for having us. Great to be Did here. Did some sleep last night or not? <laughs> uh, I got very, very little. So this, uh, uh, so I may be off my game or be sipping my coffee throughout the morning uh, presentation. Okay, so we're gonna give you some hard <laughs> math problems later. <laughs> I'll leave those to Vin. Okay, Vin, what happened last night? We were kind of all built up for, for this um, knock them out uh, fight. What, what happened? Uh, boy, um, not, not a good outcome. Um, and I don't mean it, in a partisan sense, we can get to that. But what we'd all hoped for, I think, was after all of this polarization and turmoil uh, of the last year and years, um, that we would have a decisive win, a decisive victory, and that the election would give what elections are supposed to give, which is some clarity. Uh, it did not. Uh, the, and and the, the news media and the pollsters uh, were broadly advertising a big Republican defeat, but that didn't happen. It's, it was a close election. We're sitting here, you know, we, I expect, by the way, that Biden will be able to claim victory by the end of today, but that won't even end it. Uh, because there'll be court challenges all over the place, particularly in Pennsylvania and probably in Nevada. So it was it was a closer election than anybody thought, um, anybody expected, and uh, uh, it, it it's not going to go away for a while. We're going to have we're going to be fighting this out in recounts and court battles, and finger pointing at the news media and the pollsters for a long time. I'm afraid. 
Justin, was this completely unexpected? Well, I mean, I think that the um, how close some of these states uh, were absolutely unexpected. Uh, if, if you're looking at, it at the public polling, I think the Biden team would have told you that they thought the race in Pennsylvania uh, and in uh, Wisconsin was a lot closer than some of the polling had, had said. Um, so it wasn't necessarily, um, uh, uh, you know, a surprise for them. You know, if, if it turns out that the vice president Biden uh, holds Nevada, wins Michigan, where he's ahead, wins Wisconsin, where he's ahead, and either comes really close or pulls off Georgia, then uh, from a purely, you know, electoral college map that, that looks kind of in line with what we were thinking with, you know, um, a couple of other places being close where they're, that were within the margin of error, uh, North Carolina, for example, that the Republicans are gonna pull off. But, you know, absolutely, the, the poll is uh, in Wisconsin had us up, uh, you know, eight to 10 points and some uh, even more in others, uh, big wins in, in Michigan. It kind of looks like Minnesota is the one place that, uh, that pollsters and, and prognosticators uh, kind of were about right. Right. Okay, I'm hearing bipartisan agreement that it was the pollsters fault for raising expectations. And I wanna get into that for in a minute, but, but first I wanna rerun what I thought was the narrative going into the election. The Democrats had stormed the early voting, meaning that they had cast uh, disproportionate numbers of mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, and that the expectation is that when those ballots were counted, it would show the Democrats ahead. On the other hand, the Republicans had been steered away from uh, early voting by the president repeatedly, and that we would see on election day a surge of Republican support. And so, you know, what's surprising about Pennsylvania? The president's up 700,000 votes. There's almost a million and a half votes that were cast by mail that are going to be counted. They are being counted. And initially, it looks as if somewhere around seven to eight out of 10 of those ballots are going to be going to the Democrats. Isn't that what we expected, Finn? Yeah, pretty, that's, it's pretty much what we expected. I think the Republican surge on Election Day met or exceeded expectations in a lot of places, but the Democrat you know, margins among the mail-in voters was at least what they expected. And yeah, we're, it's, it's, it's going about the way we thought it was going to go, although by a narrower margin in most of these states than we thought. Um, maybe if we'd gone back, you know, a couple of years or so and sort of projected forward, we, we could have said, this is what we thought it was going to look like. Very close elections in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, but that's not what people thought the last month or two or since the summer. They thought it was going to be a blowout in those states for the Democrats. And it wasn't. It, they're, they're, I, I believe they'll win at certainly Michigan and Wisconsin. We'll see about Pennsylvania. It'll, it'll be razor thin either way. But it was supposed to be not a close election in those places. It was not supposed to be a close election. Instead, we ended up with a 2016 finish. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and it's, you know, you can, get, you can get discouraged by all of this. But it, if the, the, we, as I said, you'd hope that the election would have established some clarity to where we are politically in the country and given people some greater confidence in the system, even if their side didn't win. I don't think that happened. I think that we, the, the, the uh, disenchantment and disillusionment of the American people with our political system, which I lament, is not going to go away for a while. Vin, yeah. would, would, just one second, Justin. Vin, when you look at a popular vote that's going to show a Joe Biden win of four or five and possibly six points, does that look like a, a kind of a popular mandate that that the president's leadership has has been rejected by, you know, five to 10 million people? It looks different to me than than 2016. It looks like a statement about, um, you know, the sentiment about the president's leadership. Well, that's I certainly if I were the president, that's what I'd argue. But, you know, we've had that argument now for about four years. People are kind of used to it. And, and uh, unless we're going to challenge the existence of the Electoral College in the United States Senate, it kind of doesn't matter. Um, but it's a good arguing point for Biden. If, if he, I mean, if we're going to have, we should talk about this. The only certainty, it seems to me, for the next four years is divided government. 
and if Biden is the president, that strengthens his hand a little bit in trying to get things done in the Congress, but not immeasurably. <clears throat> and, and uh, you know, the, the geographic distribution of the vote means the Democrats are still, the, the vote, vote-wise, are very concentrated on the two coasts. I'm sorry, Justin, you were about to jump in. Well, I was just going to I was going to piggyback off on your your comment about kind of the Republican turnout and, and the early vote for Democrats. And, you know, I don't know, Vin has been doing this for a long time as well and followed campaigns a lot. It was the weirdest election day I've ever I've ever experienced where there's basically nobody in the places that we're watching going to the polls and voting. They had already cast their votes. Lines in, in places like Farmington and in and, and parts of the 7th Congressional District where Democrats usually don't see lines. And, and it kind of felt like we were twiddling our thumbs. Um, it was very smooth in the boiler room, uh, uh, the war room uh, for the Biden campaign in Minnesota. But, but so it was just it was a very different, very different experience. And I think there's going to be more of this moving forward. Democrats are going to continue to push for early vote, even after uh, the pandemic is done, you know, trying to bank votes as, as much as possible um, and then hold on uh, as we head into election day, I think. But, but just let me ask you, if we end up with um, with Joe Biden having, you know, maybe 296 electoral college votes or somewhere in that neighborhood, he has a 10 to 20 million vote margin. Isn't that a fairly decisive win or, or do you agree that it's it's pretty muddled because of the way we're going to get there. Well, I think that I think that the president started the muddling last night by trying to declare victory and saying that they should stop counting votes. And, and that was a political uh, uh, argument to try to delegitimize Biden. Um, I, I think it also was a was a acknowledgement by his team that, that they weren't going to pull this thing off, uh, because at the time, at least, you know, according to the votes that had been counted, he looked like he was in good position. So I think that that narrative is going to is going to uh, is going to continue out there, and so that will probably muddle the mandate. Uh, I also agree with Vin. We're going to probably, almost certainly, have a Republican-controlled Senate. Um, uh, now it may be close. We'll see how close it gets, depending on what happens with the with the runoff or runoffs in Georgia. I would think Republicans are probably favored in January. They usually do better in special elections than Democrats, but. But we're going to have divided government, um, you know, uh, and the races were a lot closer than we'd expected. But, you know, I'll come back to the original thing I said. If we end up winning Michigan, Wisconsin um, um, and uh, and hold Nevada and Arizona, then, you know, we flipped three uh, Republican presidential states. The White House went through the Midwest and the blue wall, as I think many of us uh, predicted two years ago and, and kind of continue to talk about. It. I think Democrats got intrigued by the idea that we could pick up a Texas, a Florida, Georgia, uh, but, but it was kind of back to, as, as, uh, as you said, back to the 2016 map kind of all over again. Then um, we are looking at, as you said, uh, a number of lawsuits. Um, now to file a lawsuit, you need a case or it's case and controversies is the term of art. What is the case for legally counting uh, ballots. I mean, there's no doubt, that, as far as I can tell, in legal terms, there's there are ballots in Wisconsin that have to be counted. There are ballots in Michigan that have to be counted. There is some discrepancy around, you know, when to count late, uh, so-called late arriving ballots in Pennsylvania. But we do know that the Secretary of State says there's 1.4 million uncounted legally cast ballots. Is that a legal issue? Just count the ballots that meet the rules? Um, I don't know exactly what the legal case is going to be, but I can guarantee you they're going to find one. Not that they're going to win it, but they're going to find one. And and I think, you you know, when you have uh, elections are complicated matters of necessity. And you're, you're always able to find something that looks irregular and make a case for that. Uh, as I said, I don't assume that you win that case, but I think that there's going to be arguments that ballots were uh, Ill- were not properly submitted, uh, that local elected officials didn't properly uh, count them or didn't properly screen them, if you will. And uh, you know, it's it's we we saw that, and we, if you go back to to the Florida example in 2000, you know, we argued about every vote, um, and it's in in the in the end, it was a very close election. And, 
but I think that that's what we have to look forward to. I don't know exactly what case is going to be brought, but I think they're going to scrutinize in if, if it's not decisive and it looks like it can't be decisive. Although, as I said, I expect Biden will be able to claim victory certainly by the end of today. Um, if it's not a decisive win, they're going to find all sorts of ways to challenge it. Justin, what do you see the legal case that, that concerns you the most as you kind of assess the day after? I mean, I think this, the, Yes, they're going to file lawsuits, absolutely, because they're hopeful that they can that they can change the result. But I see this almost these legal challenges almost as a political argument. They need to uh, they need to try to muddy the water on the election results. They need to show uh, the Republican base that they're fighting for every vote. Uh, there's lots of Republicans that think that that uh, in Trump's uh, base that that feel like um, um, that this was an unfair election. And I think that he's been he's been sowing those seeds for a long time. And so I think that the legal challenges are, are not going to be successful uh, legally, uh, but the but the goal is a political one as much as a legal one. Yeah, it's it, it, I, that's true, and it, but it's even deeper than that. I think on the Republican side, Justin, because <clears throat> the Republicans, that particularly the, the strong Trump supporters, believe that the Democrats spent the last four years trying to delegitimize his entire presidency through the impeachment process and other things, and they're going to try to delegitimize the Biden presidency. And it's it you know you, at the at, at a legal constitutional level that's not going to work, but in terms of the confidence of the country in our institutions, it may work. Uh, I agree with that absolutely. I think that is absolutely what the what the plan is or the play is here. Uh, Vin, if you were in the uh, Trump campaign, um, would you have advised the president to make the statement he made last night? No. I, I, I would advise the president to look as presidential as he can. And he's capable of that. I mean, he's capable of showing discipline when he thinks it's important. But, to, but he, he needs to look like the president now and try to legitimize these challenges that we've talked about that go forward and not, and, and not give more credence to Justin's apt observation that this is all political. Um, yeah, I think it is all political, but you don't want the country to believe that you're doing it only politically. So he needed he needs to act presidentially during this process if he's going to have any chance at all of uh, prevailing. And do you, uh, Justin made a, yeah, as you said, a pl the argument that the court case have to go forward uh, as just a political matter and a base maintenance uh, matter. But when you kind of look at how the court's likely to respond to this. We saw challenges in Texas. We have seen challenges that the fe state, federal, and the Supreme Court have weighed in and pushed aside. Do, do, do you think there's kind of actionable material here to stop a recount in um, Pennsylvania where there are you know, 1.4 million ballots that have not been counted? No, not, not, I don't. You know, you, you can get, I'm not a legal authority, so I, I'm a little hesitant to, to predict too much, but I, I don't think that there's going to be really actionable items that will actually stop the recon. It, the, the, to the extent that I can interpret it, what the courts have sort of said so far is they're going to they respect the state's ability, right to conduct the elections. And maybe that'll be unlimited, but that seems to be the guidance that came out of the Supreme Court. And I think that that will likely be the guidance that will prevail in most places. But, you know, we got a lot of judges uh, and, and some of them have different attitudes toward these things. But it seems to me that the, the, the principle that states conduct the elections is going to be given uh, a lot of credence as we go through this unfortunate process. Um, I want to go to the uh, exit polls, uh, which we had, and I think one of the most interesting issues is why, why did last night happen? Um, and yes, the Electoral College, you know, is going to be a complicated issue, but we did have, you know, perhaps 70 or more million folks vote uh, for Joe Biden. Why did that happen? Um, and the president came in 10, 15 million fewer. Uh, one of the questions asked um, voters to rank five issues. And the number one issue, Vin, was the economy. 35% said 
said the economy was a number one issue. If you had told me that before the election, I might have thought that that the president would have done pretty well, particularly given the good news of, of late and the sense that, yeah, there's a recovery going on. Things are not uh, where they were in January. Well, yeah, I, I think I think he should have done well on that issue. But I do think that Biden, at the end of the day, the Democrats <clears throat> were able to conflate that issue a bit with the other major issue, which was the epidemic or the pandemic. And and the argument that you that Biden made, which is you can't see the economic recovery unless you crush the virus, persuaded a lot of people, not everybody, um, but a lot of people. And I think that took away from the president um, the kind of advantage you would think that he might have, given the good economic news of just the last few days, the 33 percent increase in GDP last quarter. Th those things should be very strong talking points for an incumbent president. But the pandemic uh, was effectively utilized by the Biden folks as a counter to that issue uh, to a substantial extent. Justin, um, we've got these issues here, but then we've got judgments about the president and uh, both moderates and independents broke decidedly for Joe Biden. Was that based on the issues or character? I think probably both. And it had probably had a lot to do with President Trump as well. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you're running for re-election, it's, it's often about, uh, you know, the view of, of the incumbent uh, party candidate. And so, so I think that that, that obviously uh, was to Biden's advantage. Uh, you know, back to your other point, question about the economy uh, for the president, I think that the Biden campaign effectively uh, tied uh, the economy to the coronavirus, as it's been pointed out. And also, I think the president did himself a disservice down the home stretch, not talking enough about the economy. He got weighed down into blaming healthcare professionals for COVID numbers um, and spent a day and a half talking about that and gave the Biden team something, a very strong talking point. And, um, and so I think that he hurt himself on the economy as well in the final 48 hours. Then one of the things that comes out in the exit polls is that the suburbs, which used to be uh, friendly to Republicans, are now basically uh, parity between the parties. Do you think that's a long-term thing, or is that just a Trump thing? Um, it's, it's undetermined, Larry. I, I think it's certainly in the short term, it's a Trump thing. It's not terribly surprising. <clears throat> but... We'll see how a Biden presidency, I mean, the suburbs reacted against a president that they didn't like. Um, it's not necessarily clear that the basic values of suburbanites, political values, economic values, are substantially different than they were five years ago or 10 years ago, maybe a little, but not a lot. And so, you know, the, the, the reality for the Democrats is going to be that they no longer have, are going to have Trump to blame for everything. And the, the, as we know, the, the, the midterm elections usually go against the party that holds the White House. And that's an opportunity for Republicans to come back in some of these suburban areas. Uh, it, but there has been a shift in the country. The suburbs are, are no longer Republican strongholds. And there are very few rural areas where Democrats are even competitive anymore. So we've seen that change. The, the problem for Republicans is, you know, we are increasingly an urban country. And, you know, we have traded, you know, suburban communities for rural strongholds that used to be Democratic and are not Democratic anymore. It's, it's not an even trade. Justin, I want to ask you about campaign strategy. And I'll admit that I was skeptical earlier this year when I was asking you about the Democratic Biden strategy of suspending their door-to-door -door, uh, work because of the coronavirus in favor of more digital and, and other sort of distance approaches. Mm -hmm. And yet I see in the exit polls, and so I'm gonna need a little bit of crow here, that among those um, who voted for the first time, they broke about two to one for Joe Biden. Do you think the uh, distance approach that Biden used was effective? Well, I think it, I mean, it sure looks like it. I mean, we're gonna see massive turnout uh, from base Democrats uh, in our base areas, um, you know, many, Hennepin County here in Minnesota, yeah, the Detroit uh, and Detroit suburbs. So I think we got big turnout. Um, 
you know, I don't know how much of that was uh, Biden campaign, how much that was Donald Trump, uh, all of the above. Um, you know, I think when we get past the coronavirus, we're going to go back to uh, to the way we've done campaigns uh, with the door to door efforts. But we're going to be able to layer this new tool uh, on the digital and on uh, texting uh, texting side, um, which I think was very effective. I mean, I. I mean, I think I got over the final uh, 72 hours, probably a half a dozen phone calls and text messages uh, and uh, and uh, emails about getting out to vote. Hey, Vin, the Republicans ran uh, uninterrupted uh, door to door operation in Florida. What they did in Dade County was almost textbook uh, in running up, you know, doing very well. Uh, It probably I mean, my sense is it may have flip Florida from being a toss up or maybe even a Biden state into going into the, the president's column. Do you think that Demo- the, the Republican strategy this time around in terms of how it campaigned made this race closer than what the pollsters <clears throat> were expecting? I think the Republicans, yes, I think they had the right strategy. I think a strong ground game was in is is in their interests, and I think it helped the Republicans. I think it particularly helped them in Florida. Florida does not look like the swing state <clears throat> we've always thought it was. It doesn't look deep red, but it looks to me like a Republican state. And I think other states are swing states now. That um, you know, Arizona seems to have flipped the other way. But but let me say one one other thing related to this, and you come back to your previous question, Larry. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that Biden's strategy of basically laying low uh, for a long time was was helpful to him. It, to the extent that he got out, he looked um, friendly, approachable, presidential, non-threatening. And, and Trump was Trump. He, he, he would go around and scared people all over the place. However, Biden got much more aggressive in his campaigning the last 10 days. And I don't think it helped him. I, I, you know, I know Biden a little bit and I'd see him out there. He, every time I saw him, he looked angry and I don't think that served him well. In fact, I think in the final days of the campaign, he probably hurt himself a bit. Maybe it would have been a larger margin for him, but he didn't look like a friendly, non-threatening guy out there when he was in the, in the attack on Trump. Now, you can say, well, look at, look at Trump. Trump was attacking constantly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not arguing that. Biden did anything unfair. I'm just saying I don't think it helped him to sort of get out of this unfair comparison, but to get out of the basement and onto the attack. People didn't want to vote for a slasher against Trump. And he looked a little bit like that just the last week or so of the campaign, in my view. Justin, I want to ask you about um, the timeline looking ahead in terms of the presidential election. Um, According to, to federal law, the states need to resolve their vote counts and the disputes around them by December 8th. And then the electors in the Electoral College meet December 23rd. Do you have any concern about uh, having 270 Electoral College votes in the Biden column by that point, those dates? No, I mean, everything that I've heard from from folks of the Biden team is that they don't, uh, you know, I, I, we talked about the lawsuits at, at the at the outset. I don't think that there's any legitimate lawsuits that they're going to win and that it's a political argument. So I, I don't foresee if if we hold on to these to these states uh, issues there. Then I'm asking this question because there's so many scenarios. Um, <laughs> I mean, you go on the Internet. There are many, many. And I'm, I just want to see if we can save people a lot of time uh, from searching for them. Do you think we're gonna have resolution by the December 8th uh, date that the states are supposed to have their, their vote tallies uh, submitted? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think the, the road from here to December 8th is gonna to appear to be very rocky. A lot of screaming and shouting and hollering, a lot of filing of motions and, and things like that. But I think that we're going to resolve it. And I, I still I have a basic confidence in the court system that they will understand that it's necessary to come to closure on this and not disrupt that December 8th date that you talked about. That's 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 a hope on my part. 
Um, but I also think it's true. I, I think most, I think the judiciary understands that it plays a, ma- a significant role here and they will not want to be the, the determinants of this election. Um, there are lots of great questions here um, and we're I'm kind of bringing some in, but Justin, let me ask you one, uh, which was what happened with Latino support for Donald Trump last night? Was it a deciding factor in Florida that that the warnings about Latinos <clears throat> not breaking for Biden sufficiently was the reason yeah. he lost? Well, yeah. I think it in different states, uh, the vote went for Biden and Trump in different directions. Um, you know, one of the warning signals that I've been hearing from Biden campaign for some time was that we weren't doing as well with uh, uh, Latinx voters in Florida as the as Secretary Clinton did. It clearly showed that we uh, we lost some margin there in the Cuban American, Venezuelan American community. Sounds like in Florida, some of the socialism uh, attacks uh, on Biden uh, uh, have worked or did work. Um, Biden looks like he did better in some swing uh, suburban places in Florida, but didn't drive up the the margins in Miami-Dade County. Now, the contrast to that is uh, the Mexican American community in Arizona went very heavily towards Joe Biden. Uh, and help put him over the top in in Arizona. Looks like the same in Nevada, um, and so so I think it you know it, it it kind of depends on the state and the messaging. And Republicans in Florida have done a very good job of of reaching out to and building relationships with those communities there. Um, the governor and and the Florida Republican Party uh, have invested heavily, both time and and resources into uh, into um, uh, support there, and it, and that made a big difference. Okay, uh, Vin, we, you were mentioning uh, that the expected down down ballot pressure of Donald Trump as a drag didn't play out. And I'm just curious. I notice in Maine that only about three quarters of the vote have been counted. Now, Susan Collins has a lead. It looks comfortable at this point, but is it possible that there are going to be some of these states like Maine? Um, I think North Carolina is a harder one to imagine um, where you're going to see the Democrat move forward as these mail-in ballots would tend to favor the Democrats are counted. Uh, I I don't think that's going to be a significant factor. I think the Republicans are going to control the Senate probably with a loss of a couple seats, but still maintain control of the, of the Senate. I think Maine is an interesting case. And I have to say Susan Collins accomplished what, most people couldn't accomplish, which was to successfully separate herself from the president enough to win in a state where the president was not popular without losing her own base, which did support the president. And a a lot of candidates around the country would try to do that, but would not be effective at it. She's, she proved that she is a really good politician. That's that those are good candidates. Those things matter. So she, but most places in the country, I don't think that's going to going to work. But I think that they're they're they I don't I just don't see where we're going to flip seats that the Republicans are counting on today, that that, that would flip to the Democratic side. I just I think it's going to I think it's going to be a Republican Senate, and I think the Republicans are going to gain about ten seats in the House of Representatives, which also, by the way, defies some earlier predictions that said we're going to have a great blue wave and the Democrats are going to increase their margins in the House of Representatives. That didn't happen. Now, we'll see what the final count is. We've got the number of seats in California that haven't been decided yet. But I think Republicans are going to gain about 10 seats in the House of Representatives. And if Biden is president, that that matters a lot because he's got to look then at a midterm election two years later, in which I would say it would be likely the House would go Republican. Divided government. Divided government is going to be our reality for the next four years. And, and the fact that the Republicans and Democrats have not been able to work together on virtually anything for the last four years ought to cause all of us some concern. Justin, what happened to the blue wave? Um, you know, I think, I think we're going to remain to be seen here. I mean, I, I, the, the, it looks to me like Democrats turned out in cities and suburbs uh, and we won those House races uh, and in, in the states where we had Senate races, that margin was enough to put us over the top. And Republicans picked up, picked up swing, uh, swing exurban uh, and, and suburban uh, districts in the, in this, in the U.S. Uh, House. So, I mean, I think Republicans uh, outperformed in, in a lot of their areas, uh, 
from what pollsters and Democrats have predicted. And I also think the Democratic base turned out higher than, uh, than a lot of folks uh, had predicted as well. So, I mean, to Vin's point, it's just, it's a mix, it's a mixed result. Yeah, but does it surprise you that Joe Biden would win decisively in Maine and then down ballot, Susan Collins would appear to be hanging on? Yeah, I mean, Susan Collins won her Senate seat last time by, I think, 30 points. So if she wins by three points or five points, you can see how that something like that could happen. I'm just going to come back to my point. Susan Collins proved that she is a kind of unique character. I mean, most Republicans in that position could not have accomplished what she would have accomplished. They would have been swept away. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, look, how many Northeastern Republicans are left, Ben? I mean, like yeah. Susan is, Susan is remarkable it. in that sense, yeah. Um, I want to ask you, we've got a question here, uh, Vin. Um, as a Republican, the constant predicting that Trump would lose by a landslide sure felt like an effort by the media to suppress or discourage Republican turnout. you agree? You know, I, I resist conspiracy theories, and I also resist media bashing, but I, I'm not going to dismiss that question. I, you, you look at the relentless uh, negative media coverage of Trump uh, for four years, but particularly the last few weeks, and 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 the pollsters, we we can get into that as well. Um, I I think well, I'm not going to allege conspiracy because I think it's hard to to coordinate something like this and not have everybody know about it. But I do think the media deserves a lot of scrutiny for their coverage of this campaign and the pollsters deserve, all the polling should be scrutinized as well because it had an effect and it looked, it looks to the average person like it was an orchestrated effort. Again, as I said, I don't believe in conspiracies. I think they're just, it's too hard to keep a secret, but I do think that the cumulative effect of the news media and the rest and not just the left-wing news media, the respected agents of the media, ABC, CBS, NBC, the New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, you know, I read the New York Times and the Washington Post every day. They may as well have put a disclaimer at the bottom, paid for by the Democratic National Committee. And, 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 I, and I know these reporters and I respect them, but that's what it looks like to me. Do you think Donald Trump almost incited that partly by his, you know, just... Um, constant uh, lying and, and deceptions. And, you know, you can, you can make an argument, uh, but to bald face lie to a reporter who knows, you know, something about the matters, it, doesn't it kind of create an environment in which the media is on guard against that kind of a president? Well, he created an adversarial relationship with the press. There's no question about that. And he vilified them in unfair ways calling them the enemy of the people. And yeah, that's all unacceptable. And I, a very human reaction on the part of reporters and producers in the media to, to, with, with hostility to the president. Still, you know, you have professional obligations as a journalist, regardless of how contemptuous you are of the person you're covering. And I think that they, a lot of people in the journalistic world did not follow their journalistic responsibilities. I think that they went over the top and I understand how they feel about the president and I can understand why they feel that way about him. But that still is, their, their job is not to be an advocate for the other side. And I think a lot of them went into that mode. Uh, Justin, in the 19th century, there was something called the partisan press. Right. And each party tended to have its organs that would speak for it. Um, and I'm, I don't necessarily buy into the idea of of um, you know, some of the press being the Democratic Party's organ. But when you look at Fox News or you look at uh, and read uh, some of the, the conservative radio shows, some of which I've been on, does that strike you as fair and balanced? Well, I think that you know, depending on the program uh, on these stations, there are agendas, absolutely. And you know, I, you know, I come from a journalism family and so I, I strongly believe that we need to have a fair uh, uh, um, and free press. And, and I think that they should be calling balls and strikes and not putting their fingers on the scale for one side or the other. Um, and, and, you know, I think that there is still a lot of that. And, um, um, you know, question about how they should be reporting polling data and polling results. 
Um, maybe they should characterize them differently that, that this is just a snapshot or this is just a prediction and not, uh, uh, not make people uh, think that it's a, you know, a, a likely or guaranteed outcome. But, but, and, you know, some of that has to do with the way that media has changed as well. I mean, it's now, there's, there's an entertainment factor to media that, that the cable news shows play on, which is different than, than, uh, you know, 20 years ago. But, but, but just to give you a couple examples of maybe what Vin is referring to. Um, the president struck a deal in the Middle East that's historic. Uh, it's a remarkable, it could be a game changer in the Middle East. So we're not, we're not thinking civil war and, and you know, um, death and destruction, we think, in the Middle East. Uh, as far as I could tell, there was about six hours of, of kind of appropriate uh, positive coverage of it versus when, when Bill Clinton pulled that off the peace agreement or Jimmy Carter, there were weeks of adulation or the economic news that came out a few days ago. It was, you know, it, it felt like half a news cycle. Well, maybe, are those examples of of a kind of a bias? I, mean, I don't know if those are examples of bias or of change the way the media has changed in twenty years. I mean, uh, uh, the 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 coverage on on uh, presidents uh, paying seven hundred fifty dollars in taxes felt like it was around for for one news cycle before we got to the next thing as well. So things are moving much quicker than they've ever moved before, and um, and I think that that goes back to my point about, you know, there's a lot of uh, entertainment and news as well. And, and, and folks want clicks and they want to keep viewers engaged. One, one thing I just want to say, this will, you will not like this, but I, we just have too much polling. I mean, I, and I, I'm not suggesting we should regulate it or ban it or anything like that, but I'm saying, we, you know, we, it used to be, you'd wait, for weeks between polls and, and, and you try to, okay, the next one's coming out this coming Sunday. We'll see what's changed in the last month or so. I, you and I both, now we all get daily updates of all the new polls. It's just too much of it. And, and I, again, I'm not suggesting we should try to regulate it. I think the media should be a lot more careful about how much of this stuff they're reporting. Well, well and everybody, and anybody can call themselves a pollster. That's yeah. Thing. I mean, you know, so. So I want to just add a footnote here, uh, which is I've done a lot of research on polling. I've done a lot of polling myself, but one of the projects I did with a colleague at Columbia, uh, Bob Shapiro, is we went into the archives and we found evidence that Lou Harris had changed his numbers in response to pressure from the Nixon White House, uh, particularly through Colson. And it, it's a, I think it's a pretty open and shut case it won awards and so forth. And it got me a, a pretty hostile phone message from Lou Harris, uh, which is all fun. But I think one of the responses to that by me and others is to say, let's not have just two pollsters. Let's have a group. And then why don't we average them? And then smarty pants like Nate Silver comes along and says, we're going to average them, but we're going to grade them in terms of how accurate right. they are. And, you know, I'm, I'm not defending polling because uh, I'm as frustrated as oh, you anyone. kind of are. <laughs> I'm putting it in the context, but, but I, I think polling did terrible. I mean, last night was just not a good run. We're going to do a program on this in a couple of weeks with some of the best pollsters, and I'm going to do my best to get them all uh, angry. Hey, Justin, I want to ask you, um, with regards to the U.S. House, you know, here's Biden winning, and then it you know, at least so far, and things will probably change. It looks as if the uh, Republicans did pretty well in the U.S. House race and flipping seats and, and stopping the Democrats from flipping yeah. their targeted seats. What, what happened? I think we had good, good Republican turnout uh, in, in a number of places. I mean, I think we had, we had some seats that would probably have been in Democratic hands longer than they should have that we ended up losing, um, uh, like the 7th Congressional District here in Minnesota with Colin Peterson. Um, and, and I think that, uh, in general, uh, Republicans did, did some good work. Um, again, we don't know exactly the final numbers. Uh, a number of these seats are still out, and so we'll see how many they actually end up picking up at the end of the day. Um, um, but, um, but, you know, the good news for Democrats is that Nancy Pelosi is going to continue to be the speaker. So, yeah, I, uh, one more thing, uh, candidates do matter and the Republicans recruited good candidates for the house this time. Uh, Michelle Fishbach is a good example. 
no disrespect to my friend Colin Peterson, but he had not run against somebody of that caliber in the past. Michelle's a former president of the state Senate, former lieutenant governor, a really good candidate. And that's we have good candidates around the country. And uh, as again, the quality of the candidate does matter. And I think it enabled Republicans to win back some seats that the Democrats were sort of renting, if you will. And uh, I think it'll be about a 10 seat gain for the, for the Republicans. And, you know, the, the House is structured in such a way that Nancy will still be able to hold an iron grip over it, but it's, it, it's, it's a lot of her members are going to feel uh, a little more pressed because they aren't going to be able to defect on any issue. Not They won't have a big enough margin. And, and then um, you'll, you'll note that uh, there was rumors going around that Tom Emmer was about to be axed as the head of the, the House Republican Reelection Committee. Uh, he looks pretty good today, huh? I think he looks very good. I think Tom Tom is a good candidate and a good and a good uh, chairman of the NRCC. <laughs> he would, of course, like to have won the House, but if Biden is going to win the presidency, which I think we sort of think is all agree is likely to happen, he can he's can argue strongly that to gain a significant number of seats in the, in the House of Representatives while the party is losing the presidency is a pretty substantial accomplishment. I think he had a good night and I think he's proved himself to be an effective leader. Let me ask you, Justin, um, about campaign finance. We set another record, uh, around $14 billion this cycle. What impact does that have? The fact that Democrats raise more money, uh, you know, kind of usher in Joe Biden, it didn't seem to have much impact on the, on the U.S. Senate and U.S. House races. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the only thing we're uh, certain to have is uh, more money raised and more money spent moving forward. Uh, I, you know, I think these Georgia special elections or special elections are going to be uh, are going to break all time records uh, for spending. Um, you know, I, I you know, so money is the, the be all and end all in campaigns. Uh, it's messaging, it's ground game and it's and it's the candidates. Um, um, so in some of the places where we really drove up the fundraising advantages like in South Carolina or Jamie Harrison. I mean, I think it was always a long shot that we we're going to beat Lindsey Graham there. Um, um, and, uh, and, you know, the online money poured in against Graham, even though that probably wasn't the, the best use of money. Same with, uh, same with the uh, McConnell seat. Then I'll, I'll bet you we will not see from President Biden a strong suggestion or proposal for campaign finance reform. The Democrats benefited from dark money this time. Do you think it's time for that? Do you think there would be bipartisan support for putting uh, together McCain sort of framework? Probably not. I just I I, <clears throat> I think that the constitutional limitations on what you can do in terms of regulating campaign finance make it unlikely that they could achieve a bipartisan solution. Then you know there's been a lot of talk about. The Republican Party and the direction it's going, particularly from uh, Democrats or, as you put it, the Democratic allied media. The New York Times editorial uh, page ran a uh, an editorial with the headline "R.I.P. GOP," um, hmm. and it talks about it's time for uh, the Republican Party, as it's currently constituted, to go away. Um, and I see in the exit polls that the growing part of the electorate, which are the voters of color, uh, made up 35% of the electorate and it broke almost, it broke 72% for Joe Biden. What do you think of the future of the Republican party? How would you characterize that? Well, I think that the future of the, the party is not gonna change in the way that the New York Times or other people would like to see it change. I mean, I think that <clears throat> the, the, the the changes that Trump has brought to the Republican Party are there to stay for a long time. But I don't, I, there's, it certainly is essential that Republicans figure out how to appeal to particularly the Latino community and hopefully the black community, although that seems to be a much more difficult task for Republicans. <clears throat> but I don't write off uh, the Latino community going forward. I think that they are, they're a more fluid electorate in terms of, they may vote Democratic, but I don't think that the allegiance to the Democratic Party 
is anything like the allegiance that the African-American community has to the Democratic Party, which has been cultivated for generations. And Republicans can compete there. But uh, yes, I think Justin's right. The, the issue of socialism and things like that helped them, particularly in the Cuban-American community. But there's other issues where Republicans can appeal to Hispanic. The Hispanic community is very much a more conservative community than some other minority communities. And I think Republicans must compete for that, those votes. And I think that they will try to. Then um, the Republican strategist, Brendan Steinhauser, uh, was quoted in a Politico story. He said, referring to the Republican party, he said, we're almost in crisis mode. The party's base is very white. It's old, it's rural. And this is in a country that's becoming younger more diverse, more urban. Everything is working against Republicans right now. That's, that's true for a while. And we'll see if it remains true. I don't wanna get cynical about this, but there's, there's no problem that the Republicans face that an unpopular President Biden couldn't solve for them. <laughs> and, I, and I don't say that with any disrespect to Biden at all. I, I think he's a fine person. Maybe he'll be a hugely successful president, but. I'm not so sure. You know, the, the, we look. We, we saw. We thought the country was transforming itself uh, in in significant ways when Barack Obama was first elected, and two years later they lose the Congress. You know, I think that that's that anti-incumbent uh, dynamic is going to help the Republicans. And you know, if you just take a snapshot of the party today, everything that that guy said is probably true. I don't think it's locked in concrete by any means. Justin, I want to ask you about. Just want to add just a question on the on the, the GOP, taking it away from the national perspective and just looking at Minnesota for a second. So since 2006, the Minnesota Republican Party has won one out of 27 statewide races in the state of Minnesota. So Democrats 26, Republicans won. So if you want to talk about, uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe from a national perspective, it's not yet RIP uh, for the GOP, uh, but in Minnesota, that's that's absolutely the trend that we've seen. So, so Justin, I want to ask you the flip side of that, uh, which is we are seeing regional polarization. You're absolutely right that statewide races have fallen in the Democrats' favor uh, almost every election uh, over the last, um, you know, 15 years. But on the legislative side, uh, here you had a, 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 an election last night in which Joe Biden won by seven points. And it looks as if the Republican uh, majority in the Minnesota Senate will hold. There's races out there uh, still being counted, so that's not for sure. Um, and it looks as if the DFL majority in the House, which strategists hope would expand, actually shrank. Um, and again, we don't know exactly by how much. What's going on in Minnesota that that we're seeing Democrats doing well, as you said, but then Republicans doing well? Well, uh, first of all, I'd rather win the statewide races. That's the most important, right? Controlling the governorship in the U.S. Senate is, is a big deal. Uh, it sounds like kind of no, a status quo election as far as majorities in the in the state Senate. DFL picks up two, Republicans pick up two. Um, we added in suburban districts, they've done better in um, greater Minnesota districts. Looks like we probably, uh, DFL loses a couple of house seats, uh, three of them in greater Minnesota uh, uh, for sure, uh, and maybe a couple more in the suburbs. Um, and, and so I think it, it speaks to the, the bigger divide that we're seeing uh, uh, between city and suburban voters and uh, more rural uh, voters and, and, um, and what that means. Now, it's also gonna be interesting, you know, as we head into redistricting, if Minnesota loses a congressional seat, uh, what the new lines look like and what these new Senate and House, uh, uh, Minnesota State House and State Senate districts look like and how that may shape the future of, um, of the legislature. And, and are you uh, concerned by this uh, midterm uh, backlash against the, the president's party? with regards to Governor Waltz's reelection campaign in uh, 2022? Is that a threat to him? I think that one of the best things that uh, down-ballot Democrats are gonna have going for him in 2022 is Tim Walz at the top of the ticket. I mean, what Walz has been able to do 
is reach out to those voters that don't always vote for uh, Democrats. Uh, you know, his coalition is very similar to uh, Amy Klobuchar's coalition. You know, he's going to do well in the first. He does well in northern Minnesota. Um, and then, you know, we'll juice the juice the margins in the metro again, I think. I was talking to a Republican uh, consultant last night who works on legislative races, and he was insistent that uh, Governor Waltz's handling of the coronavirus was one of the factors that helped them in making the case for Republican legislative candidates here in Minnesota. Have you seen evidence of that? Uh, I mean, I, that's the argument that they've been making. You know, they picked up a couple of seats, and so maybe there, maybe there's a correlation there, or maybe it's just that Trump was able to turn out uh, Republican voters that don't always vote in these legislative districts. There's a real intensity in Greater Minnesota against Governor Walz. Um, he's a gifted uh, political leader, and Justin may be right in that he's going to be an asset to the Democrats in the midterm elections. But it's also clear if you, you know, I've been where I live in northern Minnesota or where I grew up in southwestern Minnesota, there's a definite feeling that the handling of the, of the uh, pandemic was not respectful of differences around the state. And I think that he's, uh, I think that he's got a problem. Question will be two years from now is how the pandemic and the coronavirus handling, if that's top of mind for voters and where we're at in that, obviously. And I'll just go back to, again, 26 and one, uh, I'd put my, yeah. I'd put my uh, uh, money on Tim Walls uh, to win re-election. And, and Justin, um, we've lost a, uh, one of Minnesota's most senior member of Congress, um, uh, Colin Peterson. Um, what happened up there? Why did Colin lose? He's such a dominant figure in agriculture. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a real loss for Minnesota to lose the chairman of the Ag Committee. Um, um, it was a district that was the most uh, Trump district in the country that was held by, uh, by a Democrat. Um, I think that Colin ran a good campaign uh, this time, um, but there are fewer ticket splitters uh, uh, than we've seen in previous elections. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's what he ran into. And, and, you know, Michelle Fishbach was a good candidate. Um, and, and she, you know, she ran a, a strong campaign as well. You know, looking through, uh, some of the close legislative races, you see the Minnesota marijuana party, uh, getting votes. Justin, is that a threat to DFL? They're ciphering well, away Otherwise, I think, well, absolutely. It looks like that a number of these close legislative races, uh, they, you know, the marijuana party got five, six, uh, 7% of the vote. Um, it sounds like from, from what the Star Tribune's reported that Republicans have been recruiting candidates in CD2, for example, against Angie Craig to run in those positions to try to siphon off some DFL vote. Um, and it looks like it might've been successful in the, in the two uh, two Senate pickups that they had, there, there were uh, legalized marijuana candidates in both, both those tickets, both those ballots. There is talk at the Capitol of possibly legalizing marijuana in order to generate revenue to handle the huge uh, deficit we're facing. Um, if that were to happen, do you think that would take the steam out of the, the, the marijuana party or, or do you think it's around for a while? Well, I, I think that it, it would it would take away it, it would kind of take away their number one priority. So it, it would take some steam out of it. I mean, that wouldn't necessarily prevent, uh, uh, you know, finding another third party entity to run in some of these these districts with the threshold being five percent for, you know, for the major party status. It makes a big difference in Minnesota, unlike some other states. We, we had, if I'm not mistaken, several states that legalized marijuana yesterday in refer through referenda. <laughs> it seems like that, and I think South Dakota was one of them. Yeah, which which indicates, you know, that that issue has not lost any appeal, and it it can if it if they could win in South Dakota, it means that they can appeal in traditionally conservative areas. Then uh, I want to ask you um, about one of the exit polls here and see what you think of it. It shows that about 90% of Trump supporters and 90% of Biden supporters report that they are concerned or scared if their opponent is elected. Does that strike you as normal in American presidential elections? No, it's not normal and it's not good. Uh, but it's true that people feel that way. People feel physically threatened uh, <clears throat> as a result of the kind of rhetoric we've seen over the last few years. And I, I, 
we have to tone that down somehow, but, but it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy. And, and, and frankly, both parties, in my view, set up this election to be questioned if they lost. I mean, yes, the president with his constant criticism of mail-in voting suggestions of voter fraud, he convinced his base that if he lost, it would have been a stolen election. But the Democrats talked about voter suppression for the last four years. And if they lose, they will claim that that's why, they, that that's an illegitimate outcome. I don't, I, I don't know how we get past this, but there, we, we, somehow we have to get to the point where people accept the results of the election and look forward to the next one to remedy any grievances and don't just carry on the election date for, for years on end. Justin, does this worry you that we've got nine out of 10 uh, supporters of each of the candidates scared or concerned about the opponent winning? Yeah, I agree. I agree uh, 100% with Vin. It's, it's, uh, it's not good. Uh, and I think it is the way people feel. Um, I think that, you know, Donald Trump has thrown some gasoline on that fire over the last four years. Uh, I'm hopeful. And, you know, this is what Joe Biden said when he was running, that he was going to be the president for all people, whether they voted for him or not. I think that that you can bring down some of the rhetoric uh, the president can by the way that they talk about things. Um, and so if, if Biden comes out, I'm, I'm hopeful that some of that gets better. But, like, you know, this partisan divide is not going to change uh, whether Joe Biden wins or Donald Trump wins. Again, we're a divided country. It's incredibly close across the, across the board. And, and um, you know, it, it's, it's a, we're a long way away from, from feel, people feeling comfortable on both sides. You know, a, a Republican Senate could, underline could, be a real blessing for a President Biden. If the Democrats had taken everything, the progressive left of the Democratic Party would have considered it an open invitation to achieve all of their goals, starting and end the filibuster, abolish the Electoral College, pack the Supreme Court. All of those things are going to be off the table because there's a Republican Senate. And it would allow Biden, if he wants to govern, as Justin pointed out, that he says he's going to govern, closer to the center, and try to unite the, the country. He still has to cope with his own party. And I, you know, that's, I'll leave it to Justin to tell me how tolerant the left wing of the Democratic Party is going to be of a Biden who tries to work with Republicans and move to the center. So one of the big winners last night was Mitch McConnell, who won decisively in his reelection bid. And he's going to be a key figure. Do you imagine that Mitch McConnell? would take that attitude with regards to Joe Biden? I think that he, I think it's definitely possible. I mean, McConnell is uh, one of the most effective legislative leaders that we've ever seen. He infuriates the opposition because he beats the opposition, but he wants to accomplish things. And if Biden wants to accomplish things, then McConnell is not gonna to wanna to just sit back and try to destroy the Biden presidency, in my opinion. I mean, he's a partisan, he's, he's gonna to wanna to see a Republican elected in four years, but that doesn't mean he's gonna get up every morning figuring how he can destroy Biden. If, if Biden will actually try to compromise on some things, there is an opening, it may be a small opening, but an opening to do some things. I hope you're right, but I think a lot of us remember uh, Mitch McConnell's comment when uh, Barack Obama was first elected, which is, yeah, his, remember that. Yeah, he said his job was to prevent his reelection. Um, we have run out of time. This is another great hour with uh, Justin Bowen, Finn Weber. Thank you so much. Uh, you two have been tremendously uh, generous with your time and your, your knowledge uh, all during this election cycle. Um, I want to wish you a happy new year, but I also have a feeling we may be back together in the not too distant uh, future. Probably so. Because this is going to be an ongoing um, uh, struggle with the election, and then we're going to get into a, a fiery um, new year. So thank you both very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for hosting us. And I want to just say a quick word about upcoming events. Next week, we've got two extraordinary events on US foreign policy. Uh, one is with Jake Sullivan, who's an advisor to Biden, was an advisor to Hillary Clinton. Uh, that's Monday uh, coming up, that's at noon. And then we've got Richard Haas, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, who will be with us on uh, next week as well on Thursday. That'll also be at 12. And then later in the month, 
we're going to have uh, Susan, Suzanne Mettler, Professor Cornell, talking about her new book on the four threats facing America. Thank you very much for joining us. I want to let you know that the recording of this event will be posted. There's also going to be a podcast that you can get on Apple and Stitcher and um, uh, Spotify. Um, so look for that. Um, these events are free and open. That's part of our policy, but they do take resources. We'd be grateful if you wanted to talk with us about contributions, you can get in touch with us and the following addresses. Thank you very much for joining us. Take care and be well.